0: Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you by The Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com/give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com and by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. And by The Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at ColchesterCurryHouse.com. You're listening to episode 134 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're answering Christmas weird questions. I'm Don Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. This is an episode, take, or these questions are taken from an episode of Catholic Answers Live we did
1: a while back. They don't have a special Christmas theme, but since today is Christmas Day, Dom and I are spending time with our families, and we didn't want to leave uh, listeners without a new podcast, so we're presenting these weird questions to you. We're going to be covering subjects like the 1980s satanic panic with Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. Also, people's addiction to coffee. What would happen in an alternate history where the Library of Alexandria never burned down? What about uh, bodily mortification? The timing of Jesus's death? Was he just waiting in the tomb to come out on Sunday? Was he really dead all day, Holy Saturday? Also, what would be the implications if animals other than humans were discovered to be sapient? in dire circumstances, could you baptize using tea since it's mostly water? What if an insane person thought his cat was a priest and made a confession to the cat? Would that be valid? And also, some additional an additional question about what is the way in which artific- children conceived by artificial insemination, how do they get original sin— given St. Augustine's view that that was passed down in the Marital Act and there wasn't a Marital Act. So on Mm. all those questions, we'll have some
2: answers. Interesting. All right. Well, here's the show. Uh, You ready for Kevin's uh, weird question? Sure. Email. Okay. I'd like to know about the so-called satanic panic around Dungeons and Dragons Mm. but also the related panic about Dungeons and Dragons and murder slash suicide I'm a big fan of tabletop role-playing games I think most people of faith have gotten over the panic around the topic but you still see it sometimes I have for example seen Dungeons and Dragons listed on a confession guide I'm going to read the whole thing because it's an interesting question I mostly think this is silly and it's certainly not the case that Dungeons and Dragons involves real spells or is a gateway to the occult. On the other hand, I definitely have seen the ways in which, especially in the modern RPG community, role-playing game community, these games can become an almost religious practice for people. A lot of newer independent role-playing games use the medium to explore unhealthy fringe moralities. OK, so let's go down this a piece at a time and talk about it.
1: OK, the um, the first thing that he referred to, the satanic panic, was a thing that happened kind of in the 1980s and to some extent the 1990s. There were um, a, a number of fundamentalist Christian groups <clears throat> in particular who would argue that Dungeons and Dragons and other similar role playing games were, quote unquote, satanic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Jack Chick was an example of this. He published a, one of his comic tracks called Dark Dungeons that was specifically devoted to this theme.
2: He also thought one of my favorite institutions was Satan. Yeah, he, think, he thought the Catholic Church was. Yeah, so, right.
1: you know, he kind <laughs> of put Jack. us in the same <laughs> camp as Dungeons & Dragons.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: the, this is something that was based on the fact that Dungeons & Dragons, in particular, incorporated elements of uh, fantasy magic not unlike other things like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia or lots of classic Western literature. Right. Um, But because it had some of those uh, concepts associated with it, even though it was just in a fantasy setting, there were no actual spells that people would say or anything like that, Um, just any association with Magic is enough for some groups to accuse you of being satanic. Mm -hmm. That is not the attitude of Catholic moral theology. Um, The uh, real magic is bad, but watching a movie or reading a book or playing a game or doing a stage play where some of the characters use magic is not or even talk to demons like Faust. Oh, Which right. is a cautionary tale about you know do not sell your soul to the devil. That's a that it will not end well for you. And I learned the lesson. Yeah, um, uh, all of those are potentially uh, uh You know, you can put on, for example, a version of the Passion Play that might have Satan as a character working behind the scenes, inspiring Judas. Um, In fact, if you watch Mel uh, Gibson's movie The Passion of the Christ You've got something like that Mm -hmm. So um, creating imaginative forms like movies, plays, games, books, whatever, that involve magic or the occult or demons are not themselves problematic and not in and of themselves. They may be problematic, but it, they're not automatically problematic. And so um, the satanic panic kind of passed. But there was another panic, which he also refers to, that was sort of a mental health panic um, because there were people... Who So people who play Dungeons and Dragons, like any game, are people in a fallen state, and some of them are broken, and some of them do things they shouldn't do, like try to kill their parents for a $2 million trust fund, or fake your own death to get away from your controlling mom by hiding in underground steam tunnels under your campus, and then Hiding out at a friend's house for a month. These sound like real things. That- yeah, they were. Oh, OK. Cause it, it was so
2: specific. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. this has
1: to be a real thing he's referring to. Yeah. So um, so when these things happened, people noticed, oh, this guy who tried to kill his parents for the trust fund um, or kill his stepfather for his tr- for the trust fund, he played D&D. And so his friends were D&D players and he tried to rope them in on the plot. So D&D must be at fault, yeah. not the two million dollar trust fund and the criminal intent yeah, of the right. individual. Same same thing with the guy who like hid out in steam tunnels and then, you know, camped out at a friend's house for a couple months to get away from his mom. Oh, he was a and d player. So it must be the D&D that was the fault, not the controlling mother he was trying to get away from or the fact he was a young guy who was running away from home. Yeah. And so the moral panic also passed because it became clear with the course of time that whatever you may say about people who are into D&D, they aren't systematically turning into murderers and suicides. You know, there's no statistical data showing that the murder suicide rate is higher substantially among them than among anybody other, anybody else. So those panics kind of passed. Then they, there are lingering effects, though. And the uh, if I was reading an examination of conscience in preparation for confession and it had something like, have I played D&D in it? Uh, my estimation of the preparer of yeah. the. Of the Guide to Confession would go down somewhat because this is not of itself a problem. This is, I would say, this is a Jansenistic scrupulous tendency. Yeah. Um, Having said that, uh, there are problems uh, because human beings, you know, there are problems in this area just like there are in every other area. Could you read the last part of the question again?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, On the other hand, I've definitely seen the way in which, especially in the modern role playing uh, game community, these games can become an almost religious practice for people. OK, so let's stop there. OK. Um,
1: by almost religious, that is kind of loaded terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people in any activity who who use it, who get obsessed with it or really get into it. You know um, And it can be Any kind of activity At all It could be Rock climbing It could be yeah. Exercise It could be um, Dancing It could be Playing music It could be All kinds of things People develop ob- Obsessions Some of them To an unhealthy extent Other people Just get really Into something And it You know They meet other people Who are in it It forms a kind of Community for them um, That's not of itself Unhealthy Just being a fan Of something then meeting other fans So I, I kind of, I, I, if someone is to the extent of being obsessed with something to where they're neglecting other duties, yeah. well, then that's bad. But I would hesitate to compare it to a religion. Um, yeah. Then, and the other thing uh, that Kevin mentioned was there are uh, various groups of gamers who, in gaming, explore unhealthy moral, moral situations. And that's uh, true, um, but that's no different than reading books that explore unhealthy moral situations. There are lots of, you know, uh, books and movies and TV shows that portray, um, unhealthy moral situations as if they were cool or acceptable or glorify them and so forth. And um, and so the fact that some gamers do the same things when they're doing their games, that's just another sign of human brokenness. But it doesn't mean the game itself is intrinsically bad. Having said that now, thus far, I've I've largely said, you know, with games in general, There are role-playing games in general. They're not necessarily bad. Some of them um, like are, for example, superhero games, where the point is being good and doing good and saving people. There are even Christian role-playing games. Where saving souls or really? battling the devil uh-huh. are you know like your character maybe Michael the Archangel or something these are or that teach the virtues you know these can be very positive. Um, having said that, there is a spectrum, and some games have have problematic design elements built into them. And I would cite D anD D as an example of this. I, I'm not prepared to condemn every group of D&D gamers out there or every D&D game by no means you can run a, a D&D in a healthy way. But, um, the game has a problematic design element in it known as alignment. Um, alignment is a, um, is uh, the moral disposition of your character. So, and it's kind of a, it's not a square of oppositions, but it's, you have uh, good, neutral, and evil, and then you have lawful, neutral, and chaotic, depending on how much they follow rules versus how much they violate rules and whether they tend to be good or be bad or somewhere in the middle. And characters are authorized to have uh, players are authorized to have characters with any of those alignments. Uh, and in fact, if they, if they want to play a character of a certain race, let's say a dark elf. Yeah. Well, what kind of alignment would you suppose a dark elf might have? it's probably something in the evil zone, okay. right? Yeah. Hence the name dark elf. And, um, and so, Characters are expected to play out through uh, players are expected through their character to have their character act in a way that's in accordance with its alignment.
2: Okay. now
1: this is not in principle different than an actor playing a role. And actors can morally play roles where the character does something bad. Someone has to play Judas in a passion play. Sure. Someone has to play Pontius Pilate in a passion play. Right. But you need an actor who recognizes the evil that their character is doing and internally separates himself from it. Oh, yeah. Right. And so it's not I'm not getting into this. I'm not I may be. Physically acting out this part and saying these lines of dialogue, but I'm not going to let myself cross that mental line in doing it right but the problem is lots of actors in Hollywood cross that line yeah, method kind of method method. yeah yeah right, right and the same thing can happen with D and d players. If their character is one that's required to behave in an evil way, then they may method act with that character and mentally cross the line into oh. evil thought patterns. Yeah. And so if I had been Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson who designed the game, I wouldn't have set up the alignment system that way to, in, to make that so easy for the characters, for the players to do with the characters.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're, we're, we're psychologically vulnerable creatures in many yeah. ways. I mean, you can't just pretend to be evil all the time and not have consequences. Yeah. 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 Uh, the next uh, question comes from uh, Tim via email. I wonder if this is Tim Staples. He's just like, oh, you know what? I'm going to ask Jimmy a weird question. Does I, do- I doubt it? All right. Catechism, of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph 2290, have anything to say about people's addiction to coffee. We all seem to give coffee a pass, even though people spend lots of money on it and develop significant psychological and physiological dependence on it. Find any humorous coffee meme and substitute the word heroin. And suddenly it isn't so funny. So uh, here we have. Uh, what does the paragraph in the Catechism say? Why don't we read that for folks? Uh, Catechism uh, paragraph two two nine zero says the virtue of temperance disposes us to avoid every kind of excess, the abuse of food, alcohol, tobacco, or medicine. Those incur grave guilt who, by drunkenness or a love of speed, endanger their own and others' safety on the road, at sea, or in the air. Okay, so um,
1: so let's talk about. This subject. First thing I want to mention is the concept of addiction. I'm not a big fan of the concept of addiction because when people say someone's an addict, they uh, number one, they're implying a moral censure. But even more fundamentally, they're implying that the person has a lack of control. Mm-hmm. over the behavior. And I think that people who abuse various substances have more control than they are often credited for. And it's a disempowering message to tell someone uh-huh. you're an addict and and so forth, when in fact the person has more control that they could exercise if they had self-confidence in so themselves. The cookies really don't have power over me. No, they don't. All right. Um, also, there is no objective definition for addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not saying the term can never be used. I could imagine someone who is so physically dependent on some chemical that they will literally die if they don't get it. Right. But, um, but most people... In most situations are not in that condition. And uh, modern medical uh, health professionals have even moved away from using the term addiction. If you look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSMR, um, it doesn't have addiction listed. It has substance abuse and substance dependence. And then there are different degrees of dependence where right. like, okay, I get a mild headache if I don't have my coffee to, I have a heart attack and die if I don't have my substance of, of choice. Right. Right. Um, and so this is a more sophisticated view that I think is better, a better model to approach than just slapping the term addiction on everything. So even though I can't rule out that there might be some people who are literally addicted to coffee in the extreme sense, yeah. I don't think that's true of most people. I think there are people who use who drink coffee a lot and maybe to a point where it causes them problems like nervousness or sleeplessness or they get a headache if they don't have it. But um, I wouldn't I would tend to put that in the mild dependence or abuse area rather than a full on addiction. And that's one reason. Why? So in, you know, the reason people take substances, whether it's coffee or heroin, the other substance that was mentioned, is because there's a perceived benefit to them. In the case of coffee, they may want mental alertness or they may like the flavor. In the case of heroin, it's because it, it makes them feel a certain way. But you then have to look at the downsides. And in the case of coffee, we mentioned some of the downsides. You know, you could get you take too much of it. You can get nervous. You could, uh, you know, jittery. You could have trouble sleeping, um, things like that. In the case of heroin, though, the downsides are much worse. Heroin destroys people's lives in a way coffee doesn't. Or I should say regular heroin use does. Right. Yeah. So that's one reason why if you take a coffee meme and substitute heroin it ceases to be as funny because heroin is not as as benign as coffee. Yeah. Having said that, um, so I I would say we want to keep this in perspective. Coffee is not as bad as heroin. Quote, unquote, coffee addiction is not the same as heroin addiction. Right. Um, Having said that, I think that the uh, relevant paragraph in the catechism, applies here. Um, it says the virtue of temperance disposes us to avoid every form of excess. And then it lists some examples. You can have an excessive use of what's the first one it names? Uh, food. Food, yeah. So you can eat too much. Uh, you. Uh, the next one is... Alcohol. You can have too much to drink. The next one is... Tobacco. You can smoke too much. You, the next one... Medicine. Medicine. You can take too much medicine. Mm-hmm. So all of those are forms of excess, and they all should be avoided under the virtue of temperance. Um, the same is true of coffee. There is such to, such a thing as too much coffee. What that amount is, is going to vary from one individual to another. Most people, most of the time, if they do have an excess of coffee, it's not going to involve grave sin, um, but it is something that temperance would uh, exhort one to avoid.
2: Yeah.
1: But this is also, this is not unique to coffee. This is everything.
0: Yeah. <clears throat>
1: there is even such a thing as too much water. Water toxemia is a real thing, and it can kill you. If you drink too much water too quickly, you will die. So even something as necessary for life as water can have excesses. And uh, so I would say that the The paragraph from the catechism and the principle it articulates does apply to coffee, but it also applies to everything else. There is an excess in
2: virtually everything, if not absolutely everything in human life. Uh, Thank you, Tim, very, very much uh, for that question. Uh, Robert on Twitter asks this, Jimmy, where would we be today if the Library of Alexandria never burned down? There are those who say we were set back 500 years. It's certainly true that we don't have the Library of Alexandria,
1: and it's certainly true that there are various historical sources that talk about it burning down, but actually scholars are not convinced of that. Um, The library may have ceased to exist for other reasons besides burning down, Um, and this is a bit of a historical mystery. But um, having, having said that, we can reframe the question of where would we be if the library had remained, and we still had access to all of those ancient documents. The answer is there's no way to know. Um, we presumably might, if if we're judging things in a technological sense, we might be. A, I don't know, a century or two ahead technologically, um, if we had access <clears throat> to all of the science that the ancients knew and if that had uh, had percolated throughout the ancient world from Alexandria and other people built on it. Um, It's an interesting thought experiment, and one could certainly write an alternate history novel uh, based on the library continuing to exist. And personally, I would love to have access to all
2: of those ancient documents that are now lost, but there's no real way to tell for sure. So, just to put it kind of in a nutshell, for Robert, you're saying that if the library still existed, we would probably be cyborgs now. Not necessarily. Did I miss, did I miss some of the subtlety? No, but <laughs> and this is this is to give an
1: alternate an alternate scenario. Okay, so let's suppose that. Um, Let's suppose that technology progressed more quickly by 200 years. Okay. So instead of the atomic bomb being first deployed in 1945, it was first deployed in 1745. Yeah. Well, um, suppose other elements of our culture had not changed around the way they did. All the only thing that's developed is that's extra developed is technology, but the rest of culture is just the same. Can you imagine what people in seventeen forty five would have done if they had been able to make atomic bombs? It would have been not good. Yeah, it would it, would, it have would have been not good. That was a very warlike period. We didn't have the international <laughs> Imagine institutions the French in and trade. <laughs> yeah, so we could yeah. we could be living in Commandy's time, where you know civilization has fallen in a nuclear war, and we have talking animals now. So. Um,
2: that could happen. <laughs> I guess so. So not cyborgs. Not cyborgs. No. <laughs> all right, uh, Robert. Thanks for that very, very interesting uh, question. I kind of enjoy uh, counterfactuals. Mm-hmm. I yeah, kind of enjoy just fun, just explore them a little bit. Um, uh, but I had never thought of that particular counterfactual. Um, but you know what, though, maybe they would have discovered the new world sooner, and that would have, you know, because it, you yeah, they would have had might have technology to all kinds of more earlier like, wars. Yeah, exactly. Let's go to another weird question. Ann uh, asks I have a question. Thank okay. you for starting that way, Ann, about bodily mortification. Okay. Uh, She's reading Reform Yourself and other lives of saints who did actually damage their physical bodies. To me, that seems very wrong as our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and God created the body good, so much so that burial of the dead is an act of Christian charity. Yet we still are being advised in some quarters to subdue our bodies with either extreme and unhealthy neglect or actual harm. So um, I would say that
1: this is a real danger. Um, that there are people who do damage their bodies through mortification in a way that uh, results in permanent harm. And that's one reason why asceticism, any kind of, a, of significant asceticism, should only be practiced. Under the care of a spiritual director, you want an outside perspective to help you keep perspective Mm -hmm. on what you're doing and make sure that that the asceticism is fulfilling the goals that you have in mind for it, growing closer to God, things like that. You need someone to periodically say, "Okay, you've been fasting for, you know, growth in holiness. How's that going? Yeah. You, you know, is it making a difference or not? Right. Um, and how severe of a fast is this? Are you in are you damaging your body or whatever it may be? Um, you need an outside perspective to of a mature, sound person to help you through that process as a check, because if you're engaging in an ascetic practice that is of a significant nature, y- y- your own perspective is not necessarily objective right, and so right. you want that outside perspective. Um, having said that, uh, I can't rule out altogether the idea that, um, that one sh- that there are no scenarios where it's okay to practice asceticism to the point, that there is some kind of ongoing physical damage. Um, these would be rare scenarios that I can imagine, but I can okay. imagine. Suppose um, there is someone who, and I don't know exactly how you'd know this, but suppose there was someone who the only way this person is going to avoid mortal sin at the point of death, is if they have practiced some kind of extreme asceticism that gave them a physical mark to remind them not to commit mortal sin. Well, in that case, I would say that the good of the person's soul getting to heaven outweighs the harm That's physically done through the asceticism. Uh, This is a principle that St. Paul articulates in scripture where he talks about how exercise, for example, and bodily discipline is good to a certain point. And you know what they say about that? No pain, no gain. Yeah. The reason the pain is there, if you're, let's say, building muscle, Right. is because you're tearing the muscle fibers. That's how you build muscle. You exercise to the point that you create microscopic tears in your muscle fibers, which then grow back right. stronger. And that's how muscle building works. So um, so you are doing some damage there, but good is coming out of it. And as, as useful as physical disciplines like this can be, St. Paul indicates that spiritual consequences, spiritual disciplines are of a higher value that help you grow closer to God and get a reward in heaven. And so I can imagine hypothetical scenarios where the uh, where the greater good of an individual soul would be fostered by a, a, a form of asceticism that left a permanent mark on the body in some way. But that's not the norm. Right. And you don't want to make those judgment calls yourself. You want an outside spiritual director who can help you discern such situations, which is why in, for example, religious orders where they practice asceticism, everybody has a
2: spiritual director. Yeah. Yeah. To help you through that. Yeah. All right. Uh, and thank you very, very much uh, for the question.
0: We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Sean F., John C., Patrick, Mike and Angie G. and Gregory L., their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at Starquest. Now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 a month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their own home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. Up next is Philip.
2: And uh, Philip says, was Jesus really dead all day on Holy Saturday and just waiting to come out on Sunday?
1: I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure that I understand what he has in mind with this question. I can imagine two scenarios, and I'll address them both. One is where Jesus is dead all day Saturday and then rises on Sunday. And what the question means is, like, was he hanging out in the afterlife just waiting to come back to life on Sunday? Okay. The other, which I've also heard proposed, is that, oh, maybe he didn't uh, remain dead all day Saturday. He came back to life on Saturday and then hung out in the tomb waiting to emerge on Sunday. Okay. I think the latter is not the case, because uh, you have the statement made by Jesus himself that the Son of Man is going to be dead for three days and three nights. Now, that's actually a bit of hyperbole. He wasn't dead for a full 72 hours. But in accord with the ancient Jewish way of speaking, it means he was dead, not just in the tomb, but dead for all of Holy Saturday part of Good Friday and part of Easter Sunday. Right. So that's the three days. But in ancient Hebrew speech, they would round up. And so I think uh, he was dead all day on Saturday. And then he rose sometime in the a.m. hours of Easter Sunday. I think that's the clear implication that we're given by the text. Having said that, in terms of like hanging out and waiting to emerge on Sunday, if he's in the afterlife, I, I, I would say that's somewhat unknowable, um, in part because time may not work exactly in the afterlife the way it does here. Uh, but we do have indications that Jesus did things. Uh, in the afterlife, like preaching the gospel to the dead, redeeming the souls of the righteous so they could go to heaven, uh, you know, things like that. Um, So he apparently did do things while he was dead. What those things were and whether he had any relaxed time uh, in that period,
2: I would say is unknowable. All right, Robert, excuse me, uh, Philip, thank you for the question. This one's from Robert. Uh, What would the implications be in terms of philosophy, theology and morality if animals other than humans were discovered to be sapient? Well, um, it
1: uh, this is something I don't think is going to happen. Here on Earth? They're talking um, about. Yeah, or, or or other animals that have human level cognition. Yeah. So, sapient, um, it's good that he said sapient and not sentient. Sentient means you can feel, and actually, animals can feel, so yeah. they are sentient. But uh, sapient means wisdom. That's why we're Homo sapiens, man the wise. Right. And so, when we talk about uh, a, a creature having sapience, we would mean human level. Cognition and um, and it appears that there are no animals on earth that have human level cognition other than us. There are some that have varying degrees of cognition and some obviously more than others, but nothing has human level cognition. Having said that, let's suppose counterfactually that um, that such animals came into being or we discovered. Yeah. That contrary to appearances, something really can think as well as we can. Yeah. They just didn't want to talk to us up to now for some reason. And we're playing some game hiding that from us. Or maybe it's pixies and they did talk to the Irish, but they didn't talk to anybody else. Well, pixies yeah. wouldn't be animals to my mind. Oh, yeah. but, OK. Fair enough. Um, so suppose one way or another, we end up with terrestrial animals that have human level Cognition. Now, if they're extraterrestrial animals, you know what we call them, right? Extraterrestrials. Aliens. Yeah, oh, yeah. extraterrestrials. But um, if, uh, if let's say, someone did, a, I believe it's David Brin has a novel called Uplift, where um, various species will take other species and jack their intelligence level up. Oh. So if someone took a chimpanzee and uplifted it to hmm. human level cognition, I would say that... Um, That number one shouldn't be done. So the one question was about morality. I would Mm -hmm. say we shouldn't mess with other life forms in that way, because if you are uh, a being with a rational soul, all life forms have souls. The question is, is it rational or not? Meaning, does it have human level cognition? If it does, then even though it's not a human, I think you have to act on the presumption that it has the same rights that we do. Mm -hmm. And that makes it a moral subject. And so we would have to treat uplifted chimpanzees or uplifted dolphins or whales as Beings that have the same kind of rights that humans do, even though they're not humans. Also, depending on their dispositions, uh, it, it would get into, OK, do we evangelize them now? And I would apply the same criteria I would for extraterrestrials to them. That's something I talked about. Episode 55, Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, Aliens and Religion. Um, so I, I created that episode. So I'd have a one source go to yeah. just go to that for all yeah. these questions. Yeah. Um, The uh, philosophically, I think they would be rational substances like we are. And so that would uh, they'd have to be treated as such in terms of the rights. But it would be wrong to do this because God has um, determined. Through his own plan, how rational beings are to come into the world in our case,
2: yes, right, it's I through
1: see. human reproduction yeah, and using artificial means like test tube babies to create uh, in vitro fertilization, to create rational beings is not God's plan for our species. Same thing. Uplifting chimpanzees mm-hmm. is not God's plan for bringing new rational beings into the world. And so I would say it should not be done. It would be unethical. All right. Uh, thank you very, very much, Robert. Uh, you want to follow up on something? Yeah. So I mentioned the uh, idea of uplifted chimpanzees and stuff like that. And it brought to mind a science fiction story I read a number of years ago. I yeah. believe the title was Monkey Sea. Uh-huh. And it the premise of the story was Earth has joined a, a galactic federation. But one of the conditions for membership was we had to ensure equal rights for everybody on the planet. And the aliens who run the Galactic Federation do not see a significant difference between humans and chimpanzees. (laughs) Why would you? So we have to give human rights to chimpanzees. Right. The problem is there are chimpanzees who are living in like research facilities and like animal preserves. So Um, we can't just let them go. They're not used to caring for themselves. Um, What do we do? And so the solution that uh, the caretakers came up with was we we treat them as if they were human beings. If human beings behaved like this, they would be institutionalized. So this is now a mental institution. (laughs) Yeah. And um, the problem and that works fine for a while. But then the aliens uh, in the Galactic Confederation decide to send a doctor to cure them. And things do not go well. And it's a a hilarious, absolutely hilarious story. One of the one of my all time favorite sci fi stories. I believe the book it's in is a collection a few years ago of alien based mystery stories called What Done It's. Oh, monkey. See, it's a
2: hilarious story. It's really good. All right. Next up in weird questions. um, Amanda asks the following, Jimmy. And, and I like that she has asked the question and then a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. In dire circumstances, can one baptize with tea? It's mostly water. But here's the follow-up. Okay. What if it's sweetened? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, okay. So let's answer both questions straight. Yeah. The standard theological understanding yeah. is that you could not use tea to baptize because even though it's mostly water, it is not... Natural water, which is uh, the standard theological opinion has been you have to use natural water to baptize. Um, So if in the opinion of an ordinary person, it's no longer water, if it's something else, then uh, it is not valid matter. The there is even a parallel case to this that the Holy See decided back in 1241 AD, where they got a letter from a bishop in Norway And, you know, it's real cold in Norway. It's got lots of mountains and things. They apparently didn't have a lot of water, but they had beer. And uh-huh. so they were actually in Norway baptizing babies with beer yeah. in some cases on the same logic. It's mostly water. Well, uh, they wrote the Pope, and in 1241, if I recall correctly, the Pope wrote back and said, Such babies are not rightly baptized. You got to use Bummer. water. Bummer. So do not baptize babies in beer, and by analogous reasoning, do not b- baptize babies in tea. Having said that, mm-hmm. um, if one was in a situation where someone's about to die mm-hmm. and all you have is tea, this is a theological opinion. It's not a defined church teaching. Hypothetically, someone might use it conditionally. Oh, yeah. Saying, if this matter is capable mm-hmm. of baptizing you, I baptize you. I, mean, I can imagine someone doing that as a hypothetical scenario. I'm not endorsing it. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, when someone's on the verge of eternity, you know, that would would be the kind, if anything that if anything would be the kind of dire circumstance that would make that permissible. That would be it. Now for the second question. What, what if it sweetened?
2: <laughs> it's, you're laughing like this doesn't have a serious answer. Know, the thing is, it's not going to get more positive because you added more stuff to That's, it. That's you, all you have a correct intuition. Okay. Yes. So uh, the farther something departs
1: from being uh what a normal person would con- consider uh, water, the more impurities you introduce into it of that nature uh, and adding additional adding sugar uh, in whatever form, whether it's fructose or sucrose or something else, um, that is going to uh, further make this invalid
2: matter so but it does make it more delicious it does make it more delicious, but it's gonna not help you with the baptism, all right, Amanda, no beer, no tea uh Mark. Asks this, and I love this question in confirmation class. A kid once asked me this, and Mark, thanks for teaching confirmation class. Mm, If there were an insane man who thought his cat was a priest and he went to confession to his cat. And heard the cat give him absolution. Would his sins be forgiven? Nick is laughing out loud. Oh, it's Thomas laughing out loud at that. But that is a great confirmation class question. Yeah. So the answer is that his sins
1: would not be forgiven because he hallucinated a cat giving him absolution. Right. Right. His sins might be forgiven, though, if in his delirium, he made an act of uh, of uh, perfect contrition. Right. Thinking I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm loving God because he's so great. And and I want to do what he wants. And he wants me to go to confession to this cat. And that's what I'm going to do. Well, if his in his delirium, he on some level made an act of perfect contrition, then even though the hallucination didn't absolve him, his sins would be forgiven because he made an act of perfect contrition. And once he hopefully recovers his right mind and realizes, oh, that cat thing didn't absolve me, right. then he would need to go to actual sacramental confession to complete the sacrament that his act of perfect contrition already initiated.
2: Uh, a couple things, Jimmy, if I may. Uh-huh. First, I am delighted if that this dog, kid is now... the same thing. <laughs> no, I'm not asking well, about okay. a dog. I'm just so happy that uh, uh, this kid now is a confirmed fellow Catholic. I love the kid that had the thought. But I just want to ask you, this is for uh-huh. you personally. Because okay. I think the answer to this is yes. Okay. Did you envision a black cat with kind of white down his throat? <laughs> no. Oh, I, you didn't. I envisioned a golden tiger cat. Does I, I saw a black cat with a white <laughs> Why else would the guy think he was I a I had priest? a golden tiger. I never
1: had a black cat. I had a golden tiger cat when I was a kid. I had several cats. But uh-huh. um, the main one was this golden tiger cat, and it was huge. And I didn't realize it because, uh, you know, it was just cat. It's a cat. Um, but a friend of mine is like, no, this is like a Flintstones level
2: giant cat. Oh, ah, yeah. Um, huh. Yeah. His name is Goldie. A... See, now, I don't think it was a cat. I think that that was a, a space alien visiting Jimmy Akin. Maybe it was the great Keep, gazoo in the Keeping disguise. an eye on you. Sasha wants to ask this. I read that Augustine believed that concupiscence is specifically passed down through the act of the, of intercourse of the parents which leads to the pra- to practical questions like would concupiscence still be part of a child if there would be artificial insemination without any sexual act involved. So concupiscence is is disordered
1: desire. And it's one of the consequences of original sin. And original sin is the deprivation of sanctifying grace. So because we're born deprived of sanctifying grace, we have a broken nature that results in disordered desire or concupiscence. Um, Now, I'd have to do some checking on the details of exactly what Augustine said in this regard. I'm aware of the basic claim, but how I've always understood what he meant, and he he may have had a somewhat different take. This is just my understanding of what he meant, is that human nature was incapable in its fallen state. Human nature is incapable of passing down the sanctifying grace that would be needed to prevent someone from having... Concupiscence, mm-hmm. original sin, and thus concupiscence. Um, so if, um, Uh, our first parents had not fallen, then when they got together to make new little Incredibles, um, the uh, human act would have passed down as a sacrament, would have passed down the The original righteousness. And thus they wouldn't have the broken human nature and wouldn't have concupiscence. But because they lost this, they couldn't pass it down. Ah. And so. I've always understood it in that light. And so given that, um, if you have if you're circumventing God's plan, like with in vitro fertilization, you're coming up with a baby even without the Human Reproductive Act, then, well, that's not going to get the grace of original righteousness passed down either. Yes. So, of course, uh, people who are conceived by IVF are going to uh, be like the rest of us. They're going to be deprived of sanctifying grace upon birth. They're going to have a broken human nature. They're going to have disordered desire. They're going to have concupiscence. And you can ask All of the people who have been conceived of IVF, do you ever have temptation? And they're going to say, yeah. So this seems to be uh, experimentally verified.
2: Right, but it's if you start with it's a lack; it's not the presence of an additional thing. It's a lack of something, and that makes more that's sense. That's
1: true yeah. of evils in general; is right, they right. always
2: involve a lack of something good. And so, concupiscence is a lack of something good. Oh, so this makes me think of Jesus. Then, I mean, all, he, all, clearly he's God incarnate; all graces are. are I mean, he, he bears all graces. But does Mary, then, um, the fact that she's sinless means. Uh, she can I don't know I guess I don't know what I'm saying because he he already had all the graces could
1: could Mary if she had a child have passed down uh, original righteousness to that child yeah Um, the answer is undetermined Uh because she didn't have any other children. So we don't know. But she didn't pass it to Jesus because he he had it as God incarnate. Yeah. You could argue on a human level. She was a vessel that God used to impart it to Jesus's human nature. Oh, however, it's not certain because some uh, thinkers have also thought that it would be the male who would pass it down or it could be the female or it could
0: be both. Okay, fair enough. So, Jimmy, what is going to be the subject of our next episode?
1: Next Friday is New Year's Day, so we'll be having another Weird Questions episode for New Year's Day. Then after that, another mystery. In the meantime, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all the listeners. Merry Christmas.
0: Folks, send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest, and Merry Christmas, everyone!